I'm Janice Connolly, the Artistic Director of Women in Theatre, and I'm really pleased to welcome you to the Women in Theatre podcast. Now, in this episode, we're going to present some monologues, and then there'll also be discussions to listen to. And they're part of our Bridging the Gap project in collaboration with the University of Birmingham. The project responds to research conducted by Dr. Sonali Shah about the experiences of women and girls with cerebral palsy in relation to their sexual and reproductive health and access to healthcare. And by sharing some of the extracts from Sonali's research, the aim is to explore in discussion the potential for using creative approaches to share research material with wider professional and public audiences. And if you've got any ideas after listening to these monologues of how we can get them out there and use different creative approaches, we're really interested in hearing from you. I'm very pleased to say that I've got with me now Dr. Sonali Shah and Dr. Jana Bouchard, who are going to tell us a little bit about the background to the Bridging the Gap project. So do you want to start off, Sonali? When did you first start doing the research and why? Okay. So I started, started the research in 2019. We got funded by a funder called the Burdett Trust for Nursing. Um, and previous to that, we, me and my colleagues wrote a proposal because we felt that there's no research to explore the experiences of disabled women or women with CP on sexual and reproductive health care. So we wanted to fill that gap. Um, so yeah, that's why we did it. So you, you'd identified a gap and you wanted to fill the gap. Yeah. And I know that you that the interviews were, were quite on a national scale. You spoke to women in... Was it Glasgow? So, how, how broad? Yeah, we, we spoke to, we interviewed 25 women with CP of all ages from across Britain, so Scotland, Wales, England and Ireland. Um, yeah, of all ages, so social class and ethnic background. Uh, it's so wonderful because I think the breadth of the research is absolutely brilliant and very very interesting and unique and as you said there was a gap in the market and that makes it extremely unique. What about the relationship with the drama department Jana at the University of Birmingham? How did that work out? So a colleague put Sonali and I in touch. Um, so my research in theatre is looking at the interface between medicine and performance and so my colleague thought that Sonali and I should probably have a conversation um, and Sonali was already into the project that she's just described and um, and Sonali already has experience of working with other theatre scholars and makers in in that journey of transforming her research um, into theatre kind of modes and performances. So we decided to collaborate on this project and to find a way of 
again, presenting her amazing research and the particularly the interview material that she's collected to find a way of presenting that to a range of different audiences. And so this project was really about trying to scope um, the possibilities for that work um, and drawing in you, Janice, uh, as part of Women in Theatre as being a, a, a really wonderful collaborator on the project as well with your experience and expertise in making theatre with and for women and in relation to healthcare. Brilliant. It's, it has been a wonderful partnership and it was meant to be shared, uh, I think, live, but with COVID, etc., we decided to go online with it, but which was a brilliant thing in lots of ways because we were able to have people from Italy get involved. What we did was we created a selection of monologues I called them monologues, but what we take we took out of Sonali's research to share with an interested group of people, and we did two of those sharings online, didn't we? And they were very successful. Did we? Did you find it was there's an interest in people? Were you? Was the take up good? Would you say, Jana, for it? Yes, I think we were a bit kind of blown away, um, mm. <laughs> and. It's always the case, I think, when we when you start a research project, you're not really sure um, about its onward life and how productive it's going to be. Um, and doing these workshops, it's a shame that they weren't live. But as you say, doing them on Zoom meant that we could have international collaborators and, and uh, a much wider discussion. And I think it really reinforced for all of us the the value and the importance of this work and of getting these voices, these women's voices and experiences heard. Again, to, as I said, to a variety of audiences, both healthcare professionals, other um, women with, with CP um, and a, a kind of more general audience to really understand the barriers to reproductive healthcare um, and to start to think how we might use theatre to convey these stories. Is there anything, Sonali, before we actually hear the monologues that we shared online um, that you would like to say about what your hopes were for the research and what they are now looking into the future for it? Yeah. What do I have for this research to inform healthcare professionals about the interface between the impairment and the female life course and what, how its unique effects. And by listening to the women, they could help develop new strategies of because there's a large unmet need. Women sometimes don't get smear tests. They don't get mammograms because of the barriers they face. They decide it's too, too much trouble. So they don't do it. And therefore, they're at a very high risk of disease or mortality. So I think with this, it should help develop new ways of interacting with patients. 
Thank you so much. And I'm so pleased that you um, that you both thought of approaching women in theatre because it's a perfect project for us to be in, involved with at the beginning. And now you're going to hear myself and Alison Belbin reading some of Sonali's research that she did. Uh, there's, there, there's so much more where this came from. This is a small sort of tip of the iceberg. So we'll read some of the monologues. And then also there's a discussion following it with people who came along to the Zoom sharings and they're going to kindly have come back to talk to us about their responses at the time and things they've thought about since. So thank you so much to Sonali and Jana. And now we hope you enjoy listening to myself and Alison Belbin reading some of these monologues. Thank you. Diagnosis. I wasn't diagnosed until I was 15 years old. It's quite interesting because I didn't find out that I had cerebral palsy until two years ago, age 44. It was purely by chance, because about two years ago I went off sick from work because, well, physically I was knackered. And I ended up having my periodontal depression. And again, I was having a lot of musculoskeletal problems, classic stuff. And the GP said, I think the fact you're having musculoskeletal problems is related to the fact that you have cerebral palsy. And I was like, what are you talking about? My family wasn't told when I was born. I think they immediately labelled my family as dysfunctional. I was born prematurely. I was born about three months prematurely. And it was diagnosed because <laughs> the words in the notes said retarded motor skills. Life effects. Diplegia, mobility and coordination. Quadriplegia. Mobility, speech and coordination. Hemoplegia. Mobility, cognitive and coordination. My clumsiness and limp were just part of me. I did get bullied a bit. My muscles have suffered a bit from not having earlier physio and also I thought that was normal. It was only when I started examining patients that I realised my muscles were different. Hemiplegia. Mobility, coordination, speech. Hemi. It's mostly my upper body it affects. When I tell people I have cerebral palsy, they either look at me like, do you really? Or they think, oh, well, you haven't got it that bad. Because it can be so severe and impact you so much. Puberty. Well, I had a lot of puppy fat and I got loads of spots and I was taller and... A lot of hair, breasts and periods, and I had loads more sweat. But I also started having seizures around puberty. In the beginning, they were quite intermittent, like three weeks apart. And as puberty sort of got stronger, I would be quite angry and then I would be really teary and sad. I started restricting my diet and I realised that restricting my diet led to the cessation of my period. I then developed an eating disorder because it became so convenient to not have the period. So I got out of that. I haven't had a period since I was 17 years old because of the effects of the eating disorder. I just restricted my food at age 17 and my weight kind of dipped. And it kind of solved so many body image issues that sort of related to my cerebral palsy. Well, like feeling clumsy, feeling oaf-like bumping into things. It helped me feel kind of small. 
And also, I have some very slight swallowing difficulties, so I get a messy mouth when I'm eating. So not eating kind of solves that. And I always felt quite unfit because my PE teachers would criticise me for being bad at physical sports. So I just thought that was because I wasn't very fit. And not being fit, I associated not being fit with being overweight. And I thought I could make myself slim and fit by not eating. What about specifically being a teenager with a disability? I kind of thought it would be like the same as everyone else. It's important to be healthy. And I think just because I've got a disability, that doesn't mean I have any lesser right to be healthy. Menstruation. I was 13 years old when I started menstruation. I was 12 and it was in the Christmas play rehearsals. I was at school at the time and I went to the toilet. Um, My mum had prepared me, but I still panicked and went to find my TA. 14 at boarding school. I was glad. I'm normal. For me, that was an affirmation that even though I have CP, I'm still normal. So yeah, I was glad. For me, that's a type of normal. The staff had to get the pads more or less in the right place. Looking back, I'm amused at the contortions we had to do. I didn't understand at the time. One house mother made this comment very often. It's a shame you weren't done and then we wouldn't have this every month. It's only in the last 10 to 15 years that I've put it into context. The worst period was when I'd fallen and they stood me against the wall the first time after my operation And I didn't know, but the blood was pouring down my leg, as if I hadn't got enough to contend with. I came on the day after my operation. Smear tests. I go for every smear test that I'm invited to go to. They're difficult, but I go for them every time because I think it's important. Oh, I haven't had one, a smear test before or discussed it with my doctor. I'm 22 now. Going for a smear test is a pain in the backside because you'll get shouted at because you can't open your legs wide enough or you can't do this. They'll say, why can't you? And it's just like, I can't. I physically can't do it. And you have to explain beforehand and that can be quite frustrating at times because... There just isn't enough knowledge about the condition at all. Oh, I definitely did get the smear reminders, but I dreaded the physical requirements. I never went. I wasn't sexually active till I was 20, so didn't prioritise sexual health checks. And to my shame, didn't have my first smear until I was 27, three months postnatal. (laughs) My daughter has been a great motivator for self-care. Again, it wasn't comfortable due to having to part my legs, but thankfully, not impossible for me. Well, obviously, I don't need them now because they've taken my womb away. But even with that, I said, look, if it's not done quite quickly, then my leg goes into spasm and I could kick somebody. And I used to say this, I'd say, look, I'm not joking. If I say stop because my leg is going to go, we'll just have to wait until my muscles decide they're going to behave themselves. And a couple of occasions, they had to do that. I have regular cervical smears. It's a nightmare. Our natural instinct is to turn stiff. And the last thing you should do is stuff to make it more painful. But luckily, because I do a lot of exercise like Pilates and yoga, I know how to relax. 
healthcare in terms of sexuality? Fuck all. My first smear, well, the most hassle was getting me up onto the bench. And at that point, my knees were halfway up to my neck anyway. So it was reasonably easy to get at me. I wasn't being seen by my doctor, I was seen by a nurse, which I have always found to be far more comfortable. My womb is tilted, so it's quite hard to get a smear test. And I don't know if that's to do with the cerebral palsy or not, you know. There are other things going on with my body, and I don't know if they're related to cerebral palsy, you know. It's just finding out everything myself. Well, I do remember one nurse that wasn't very good. I had my new patient medical, and the nurse that did it asked me about smear tests, and I said I hadn't had one. And I tried saying some of my concerns, like the spasticity, opening my legs, things like that. She was very dismissive. She was like, well, if you can have sex, you can do it. That was it. That's all she said. It just takes so long. And without being graphic, my cervix is quite far up and tucked away. So it's difficult to find my cervix anyway. I went for one about two weeks ago and I had one person on each leg holding my legs apart because I can't hold them apart. And I had two healthcare professionals looking down at me with the light, and it took 20 minutes to find my cervix. I've had one that was fine. I went and I sort of knew what to expect because I'd already had my coil inserted, so I wasn't too worried about it. I think the only trouble I had when I have any tests, when I'm kind of lying or sitting or when I'm in an ECG, because I'm mostly affected in my left arm, the tremors get so much worse and it's partly because I'm concentrating and partly because I'm a bit embarrassed because, well, you know. And then people kind of ask questions and assume I'm really upset or nervous or something and then I kind of have to say. But yeah, I really didn't have any problems with the smear test. I have to go into hospital and get general anaesthetic because my legs are tight at the top. And the last time I was in, the guy that did it said to me afterwards, I think next time we'll wait five years rather than three years. Which he shouldn't have done that because I think up until you're 50, it should be every three years and after that every five. But he wanted to wait. I don't know if he saw... General anaesthetic isn't great to get done. He didn't ask me about my sex life, so I don't know if maybe he assumed I wasn't having sex... So it didn't matter. Mammograms. Well, I'm guessing this year, now that I've turned 50, I'll be subject to the mammograms and whatnot. I have had one before because I had a suspected lump. Turns out that was just a cyst. But that was quite difficult because with my balance and the pressure from those machines would knock you on your back. And I told the nurse during that process. And I was standing during the mammogram, no other option, And there was quite a force that comes from the machine. So I had to have a nurse assist, like a a pressure force, if you like. So that could be quite challenging as well. Oh, the nurse was lovely. Very helpful. I stayed in my wheelchair and the mammogram machine comes down to the level of the wheelchair. I had my last breast screening five years ago, 2015. I've had two altogether. There were two female nurses at both appointments Oh, I requested a longer appointment for the second screening, which helped me relax. My local breast screening unit is wheelchair accessible and I was able to use my mobility scooter for the second appointment, which was easier. 
Parking was good, but still quite a distance for me to walk. I found it quite difficult to stand and have my chest squashed onto what felt like an oversized Petri dish. But the female technicians were good, and it was easier the second time because I knew what was required. I didn't like the idea of trying to get up one of those silly caravan steps into one of them caravan things. So I spoke to the GP because the letter says, if you have a disability that may cause you issues, ring this number. And I did. And I explained and I said, look, I really don't want to have to go. So I have mine down at the hospital. I've done two now and it's difficult because of the position, you know, that my arms are in. And I'm saying the same things like to the mammogram person, you know, I can't guarantee you that I'm not going to move. If my arm goes, you may have to do it again. They're pretty good, you know. Even tying the flipping gowns up's hilarious. You know, I don't care. I'm going around like this and if I flash, well, they're all women. We have a mobile mammogram unit that comes here. And it said on the letter that if you need wheelchair access, you had to ring this number. So I rang the number and they changed the whole appointment. Because apparently what they do is they have a whole day just for wheelchair access. And the lady that was on the unit explained to me that the reason they do that was because they have three staff on that day and it was only me in the unit. They spread the appointments out to give everyone plenty of time so that they only have one wheelchair in the unit at a time. So that was quite good, that. I need to tell you about the breast scan. They nearly took my breasts off. Hey, don't laugh. You know the way that we like to get out of our wheelchairs? I have more control when I'm sitting in a normal chair. And they say it's quicker if you stay in your wheelchair. And I couldn't keep my body steady. So my tits were clamped in the machine and I moved where my breasts were still clamped. I told them, hey, don't call me because I won't be coming back. I made a complaint. But when I went back last year, they were perfect. Well, before, the staff were awful. Ageing. CP isn't fixed or stable. It will probably change as you get older. Healthcare professionals will probably not understand that. But I hope they will. I know I felt very heartbroken that what I could once do was slowly becoming a fantasy. I feel like it, you know, it gets more unpredictable. I used to know what actions cause what pains. It creeps up on me now. It takes my confidence and independence. Losing my balance can just take me by surprise. As an adult, I have never experienced an ache or pain which has stopped me from living my day-to-day life. Normally by my age, people with my level of CP can't walk at all. My conductive education helped, but I am still walking and I'm determined to stay on my feet until I pop my clogs. It's made me happier and feel healthy. Well, Before I got back on my feet, I used to have a lot of stomach cramps and all that went when I got back on my feet. It only started to shift after I was 50. But I sort of... Because I've not walked... I don't have the wear and tear that a lot of my contemporaries who did walk have. I think that I've noticed mostly more and more things that I can't do. Sometimes I think it's partly to do with my awareness. So I'm more aware of when I'm having a bad day or a bad week or so. 
And also when I'm doing more things, you know, like texting and using WhatsApp, there are some days when I can't use the text and I've got to voice note people. But I wouldn't have known that 10 or 15 years ago because I didn't have a phone. I think I'm more aware, because I do more and more things as I grow older, I am more aware of the things that I can't do. I think um, a bit more spasms and pain and getting tired more easily, probably. And that spoons thing has been very important to me. Like, don't do everything on Monday and have nothing by Friday. Don't run the tank out in one day. So that has been very important. And I wouldn't say I've deteriorated. In fact, in some ways, I've actually improved just with the physio and and the skiing has been very helpful to me, just in terms of leg strength. But I would say that with age, things have just become a wee bit harder. Lack of professional knowledge. None. Absolutely no knowledge of CP in women's health care. In my experience, many people equate a speech impediment with a learning difficulty and do not listen. My worst experience was when I had to go to accident and emergency for a concussion. And because of the way that I walked and because the concussion really amplified my speech, they kept insisting on drug testing me because I had bright pink hair and walked funny. My worst healthcare appointment was when I met a physiotherapist from adult services. This is because he asked me if I had a learning disability. My medical records show that I don't have one though. And when I told the physiotherapist that I didn't have a learning disability, he said in a condescending tone, not even a little one. Oh, I was seething with anger. This is because of the way he didn't believe me. I think the way he behaved was completely unacceptable. Because of his profession, he should have known. Best was with a physio. She said, so you have right hemi-CP? I asked her how she knew. She said, I just watched you walk in. Oh, it made me feel seen and understood. She spent a long time helping me position myself and was really gentle. Advice to the next generation and suggestions for change. Well, find a good GP, get to know them, get to know your GP surgery, the receptionists and staff in general, so that when the time comes for you to visit, you feel more comfortable in the surroundings, etc. I would say you have to grow a thick skin and you have to fight really, really hard just to survive in the world. You're on a treadmill all the time because people's attitudes stink. When you're at school, or when I was at school, in a way, you're kind of protected. But when you get out into the big bad world, nobody gives a monkeys, you know? And if you don't fight, then you get chucked on the scrap heap. And not only are you fighting to survive, to stay in line with everybody else, but you have to try and educate people as well. And most people aren't bothered. They don't want to know. They're not bothered. I mean... (laughs) Going to interviews for jobs is dire. People's reactions stink. So I'd say that you have to grow a thick skin and your journey is your journey and nobody can walk your journey. Only you can. Well, you need to be an advocate for your own health. If you frame sex as tabby going into slot B, you might be disappointed. 
It's about much more than that and the right partner will accept you for who you are. And tell healthcare professionals what your needs are and don't expect them to know. I would tell her, that teenager, to have as much fun as she could when she's that age because when she's older, it all goes. (laughs) I would just warn her, just look after yourself. Keep yourself as flexible as you can, as pain-free as you can and just enjoy yourself. I don't want to say that it might all come to an end because that sounds terrible, but I would warn her to be careful about things. I don't think I've done anything wrong in my life. I really don't. I don't regret anything whatsoever. I regret breaking my knee, but there's nothing I could do about that. Yeah, I'd advise keeping as active as you can doing exercise, but also be aware of your limitations and rest. Having the right rest is very important. Don't push yourself. See, I just keep going, going and going and going until I couldn't go any further. Oh, and pace. Yeah, I think it's good to pace yourself. I do think that at their age, you don't really realise that... I can remember thinking, oh, I'm fine as I am. I don't need this. I don't need that. And it's only as you get older and you're looking back and you think, oh... If only I had listened. But that goes for all teenagers, but is especially important for cerebral palsy. I would say that everything they are experiencing as a teenager is temporary. Everybody has issues with confidence and fitting in, and everybody's more worried about how they fit in. And as far as things like sexual health and things like that go, and GP services and things like that, Keep asking questions. Keep going back and refuse to take no for an answer. Actually, there is nothing wrong with you, but there are things wrong with the world at the moment. (laughs) And don't be afraid to make a dirty joke and see the shock on people's faces when they realise that we have a sense of humour. I think the whole thing with relationships is really hard. And that's why I mention that. Feeling confident about going into a relationship. Dreams and hopes. I'd quite like to have an accessible home. I would like to be an author. I'd quite like to write an autobiography and and I'd also like to write a fictional story about disabled superheroes. I'd also like to have a family. If I were a politician, I would talk about educating society. Because until society is educated, nothing will change. Pockets of it will, if you get people like yourself doing brilliant work like this. But I think people should be educated from when they're young and realise that although people might not look like you, talk like you, walk like you, or have the abilities that you've got, they still have them. You might just have to dig a little bit further down and work a bit harder to enable that to happen. Letter to future self. I would say, I really hope that you are happy and have achieved your goals. And if they're the same goals that you have right now, you will have children. And I really hope that you were supported through that process. I hope you're able to care for them and you are supported in doing so. And I hope that if there's something you can't do, you don't beat yourself up and think you're a bad mum. Because, you know, my dad couldn't do my hair and he wasn't a bad dad. 
So don't blame that on your cerebral palsy. It's just something you can't do. And I hope that you've helped to change the world in terms of attitudes to disability. Do that through activism, participation in research, doing your own research. Yeah, I hope you've helped to make things better. Listen on now to hear me speaking with some of the people who joined our online Autumn 2020 workshops about what the research made them think about and ways we can progress this project. I'm very, very pleased to say that I'm now being joined by Gwydion Calder, Reshma Patel and Tanya Myers, who attended our online discussions back in 2020. Gwydion, tell us who you are, what you do and what was your interest in coming along in the first place to listen to these monologues? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I'm Gwydion Calder. I'm a PhD student at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire in, in Birmingham. Um, I'm an actor by trade, uh, but I have a particular academic interest in um, actors who have chronic disabilities um, and how you manage those and, and maybe incorporate them into your work, um, working with something as opposed to working in spite of something. Okay, that's going to be brilliant, actually. Thanks very, very much. Uh, so, Tanya Myers, who are you and what's your interest in this project? I'm an actress, um, but I'm also Artistic Director of Meeting Ground Theatre Company, and um, I wrote a play called Inside Out of Mind, which was uh, based on uh, verbatim material uh, on the subject of dementia, and I'm a full-time carer of my husband who has Parkinson's. So in a sense, sim similar in a way to Gwydion, my, my interest is about raising awareness, how theatre itself um, becomes the forum for meeting new audiences. Brilliant, thank you. And Reshma? So I'm Reshma, so I'm a disabled person and my interest in listening to the monologue is more about the similarities between different people and things that are not spoken about so openly in society and a bit of awareness around that. You know, a lot of what I hear and, and heard from the monologue is yeah, not spoken about. And I was reflecting myself as I was listening and thinking, I experienced that, but I haven't, I don't talk about it. I talk about it in different ways in teaching, but not in this is me type of thing. Okay, which is what theatre can do, actually, is the personal, isn't it? The, the voices of the personal. So I was very, very taken when you were talking about, um, Gwydion, about you disabled performers. Um, so what struck you when you were listening in terms of your particular interests? And also you're a musician as well, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I do some singing. It's it's uh, this this recurring theme of not um, not having your your needs and desires being um, observed or acknowledged. Usually, because the the physician knows what's best for you, because that's what it says on paper. I know in my, in my own experiences and people I've I've worked with, they've had difficulties getting to rehearsals or, or engaging in rehearsals because of a complication um, with their condition. Um, and when they've brought that to their physician, that's sometimes they've been told, well, maybe you just shouldn't do this work then, or you're just going to have to find out some way of dealing with it. So there's a lack of willingness to, to engage in those conversations. And that's not everybody. It doesn't happen all over the place, but it happens far too frequently, I think. 
Okay, and if you come up with any solutions or best practice that you think would be worth people being aware of, theatres being aware of when they're working? I I think uh, in some some of the um, some of the monologues even said this. It's just you have to you can't say you can't take no for an answer, and you have to keep addressing it. You can't let people just not be bothered by it or not not be bothered by it. Um, they they need to be. Um, okay. it, it, it's something that you live with, and you you are bringing everything that you have into into that group. So they they need to be concerned with it at least at least on a smaller scale. They can't just ignore it. It cannot be ignored, and it needs to be taken um, into consideration. And changes need to be made. Is what you're saying? Uh, yeah. Keep bringing it up. Keep Ongoing conversation, just Ongoing so it's, it's normalized. To, yeah. I think sometimes people think that a conversation about a disability or a medical condition needs to be sequestered. Like you can only talk about that if that's what you're going to talk about. But slipping it into everyday conversation, just reminding people. Um, like I'm diabetic, so when I when I have to, um, you know, have have food or something like that, I'll be like, hey, "Give me a second, let me check my sugar." And it becomes part of the life, and other people become aware of this. So some of these conversations or some of these these monologues, these could happen in a play. You could just stick one of those monologues in there, and then it, that's the character. And yeah. because these are taken from actual experiences, not yeah. what somebody thinks the experience is like, yeah. um, you're you're creating that um, authentic awareness and dissemination of of the experience. Thank you. So authentic, and it raises awareness. And and that idea of putting these conversations out there made me think about Resh, what Resh was saying, which is these things have happened to me, but I've never spoken about them. It's sort of putting these things that are hidden, hidden experiences, really. Why do you think they've been so hidden, Resh? I'm not sure they've been hidden, but I think right. that, that as you've grown up through the 70s, 80s, 90s, yeah, you've just like, it was mentioned in the monologue that you've learned to fight, you've learned to stand up for yourself, and you've just continued it on instead of, you know, and in reality, it's society and that needs to change. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, in reality, it's the society that needs to change. But unless we bring all this out in the open, we're always going to be the ones that um, stick up for everyone else. And society will never change. And I quite like what Gwyden just said about the diabetes. And I was reflecting on that and thinking, actually, I'd never talk about my disability. No, exactly. Why don't we? Like, I'd never, ever say... Um, it's only recently I might have started, but that's only because I've had so much problems in care, but um, in the support that I receive. But I've never ever said that I need time out because I'm in pain. Right. Okay. But yeah, so you've you've kept it quiet, Tanya. Yeah. Mm. Anything that when you've been listening to this discussion that you would like to add to it, or anything that you were thinking about when you were listening to the monologues again? Yeah, there's, there's loads. Um, I think the first thing is the, this whole question of taboo, is that stepping over what uh, the sense of challenging, I guess, people's perceptions, uh, which is obviously running all the, all the way through, but also providing, creating space for the voices and the stories to be heard experiences to be shared um and it, it i i suppose I've, i'm more full of questions really especially when it comes to the theater making because there's such an 
a sense of, um, I mean, what struck me all the way through was the, the aspect of the activism. Is these are voices that are saying, you know, we're part of, this is our world, this is part, you know, we're part of society. And actually our voices are important, our experiences are important for everyone's sake. And we need to be heard because this is going to have a positive effect on the whole of society. Yeah. So I guess that's the, the sense of uh, how to listen, how to create the spaces for these voices to be heard. So it's not a sort of spectacle. It's absolutely embodied, you know, within, within our everyday life, within our everyday culture. So I think those, those were the things that, that came up for me. But the questions would be more related to how you might how make this in, into theatre. Yeah. And where, I mean, do you think it's, only for a, a specialist audience of professionals no no, no. so what do, what do you think tanya I, I suppose the first thing that, that came up to was are you think which area or medium are you thinking of working in because it's the intimacy of these voices as well these you know it, the power of radio to be able to reach vast audiences actually but also without all the paraphernalia of what staging might involve it's, it's a very direct medium isn't it to, yes, to so actually hear the these audio. voices um i think when you thinking of theater suddenly you're in a different area of layering and i always find it fascinating to start asking the questions about layering how much are you giving agency in a sense to these voices but also opening up wider questions you know using sound using images in relationship to the stories that are being told do you think whether it's an audio piece or a theater piece or you know a musical or a mixture of all sorts of things whether this is for mainstream audiences in theaters i'm going to ask Gwydion that who's the audience for this piece do you think I think it should be mainstream. It, it, it's one of those conversations that, you know, it's been taking place in the shadows almost for, for so long. It just, they, they need to come out. It needs to be put in. These people exist. We need to see them in the stories that we're telling, even if it's not specifically about that story. Um, and it could be, it could be casting choices. Um, I think we could, yeah, very interesting about casting in a minute. Uh, Reshma. Well, I'd definitely say mainstream anyway, because obviously, I've seen some of the smaller pieces um, that are not necessarily always mainstream, mainstream, sort of like the universities, um, et cetera. And they don't, and they hit me hard um, when it was about different areas of society. So I think if we could hit mainstream um, with, in a different way, it would really, you know, work because you've got to get the audience in as well. Because it's not got to be about, I'm going to watch this because, you know, it's about disability or it's about this. It's got to be, I want to go and watch that. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think the appeal is for this piece? What's the appeal? For me, it's hearing the stories that I've not heard. Yeah, and I think um, because it deals with something that a lot of people can get kind of cringy about, being, um, you know, with, with, with uh, sexual health, um, it's something that people are going to kind of want to watch anyway um, because it, it, it caters to that the, the, the side of you that says no I shouldn't I shouldn't take an interest in this yeah. um, but we don't usually put together a person's sexual needs and their disabilities 
And this is an interesting mixture of those two things, because yes, people with disabilities still have sexual health concerns. Janice, I think it's funny too. Yeah, you watch all these boring programs <laughs> on, I don't know, BBC Parliament or something. But if we could get a viewing there to say this is what society really is. It's very important that it's funny, actually. Isn't it? it is, yeah. I, I um, Sorry, just to jump in on that, because I there was something that somebody had said in one of them um, uh, about uh, something... So, something about how, how they were being kind of treated with kid gloves. And it, it was like the doctor was projecting um, his or her own fears onto the, on, 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 onto the patient. Um, as if this worries me, so it should worry you. And she's just like, nah, just get in there. Just hold my legs open and get in there. <laughs> yeah, that's... She was laughing at that. And the, the doctor was not, um, well, was not. And it's funny. It can be funny. What do you think about cancer? There was me reading young people, older people, as this white northern woman without cerebral palsy. Do you, who do you think the, should be in the cast? And casting women living with CP? Well, that's it. That's what I'm asking about, really. That, that's, a, that's a hard thing to, um, to broach sometimes because you might have the show, but you might not have the amount of actors available who have lived that experience. So I would suggest a lot more research go into what it is to portray that. Um, certainly having to have more experience or, or have a relationship with somebody who has had that experience. Because you don't, you don't want another lazy facsimile of what a, what a condition is. What do you think about that, Resh, about uh, casting potentially uh, actors without CP? Yeah, I've always had mixed feelings about that mm. in the work that I do do in my own personal life. Because I think, unless you've lived it, you can't really give it what it needs. Um, and although that might mean, in my honesty, mean quite a bit of working with people as well, in order to get people to come out of their shell, because um, casting people with CP would be the best solution, because I know often we'll look at TV programs, don't we, and we watch... Uh, so for me, as a person with a disability, it's really important to have the people who experience that to be a part of it, even if they're not... But I do know that there's a lot of disabled people in um, the theatre and in the films as well. So I know that there's lots of things that go on, but even if they're not in theatre at this stage, could we do some work with people? Ah, okay, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. So we could bring up people who perhaps are interested in performing but haven't as yet yeah. done any yeah. performing. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting idea. Yeah. All right, people love to tell their own stories. Yeah. So if they get a chance to do that, I think a lot more people um, would, be, would be willing to jump on board for that if they yeah. were given that opportunity. Yeah. yeah. So, for example, we role play at work. And <laughs> whilst I might not role play, particularly anything to do with my impairment or disability. Um, what I will do is role play something similar. Does that make sense? Oh, okay. Yes. And when I'm role playing, I can go into character, have a real empathy for it. And that's one thing we have proved at work is when we used to bring role players in from the outside, they didn't have the empathy that our social work students needed. But because we're now role-playing ourselves, they get, because 
they get it, you know, a lot more easier that actors coming in and uh, just giving them our case study, whereas we'll just swap our case studies around. Okay, I think it's a very interesting idea to work with um, a cast that are perhaps not experienced performers, but are, are interested and have CP on different backgrounds, different ages. It's the variety of the women that I think is really uh, important. All those different, how you get all the different voices coming through. Also, potentially maybe the dialogues that are going on. The question of empathy, you know, that's why actors are deep desire to put yourself into somebody else's shoes and try and imagine. I'm just wondering how within a workshop situation where that would also be useful in terms of the storytelling process and the listening process and the bouncing backwards and forwards, it would be benefiting everybody. It would be benefiting actors. It would be benefiting, hopefully, the storytellers. It should also be the students that are going into, you know, the young people going into society as well. Yeah. Medical students should definitely yeah. be part of that. I think um, we mentioned uh, empathy earlier. And in a lot of cases, I see empathy being likened to a bullet point list of this is how you show empathy. And I, I, I frankly, I don't think empathy is something that you can teach. It's something that must be experienced. And so that's that's that you have to you have to give people something to observe um that helps them have that experience as opposed to just now you look them in the face now you stand with an open posture mm. now you touch their elbow lightly that's mm. that's not what empathy is i was also thinking uh, from both for both of you have said all three of you is there something here for me about an almost a mixed cast would feel quite comfortable with me as well so that you know if it was a mixed cast working together mm. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because you could, with a mixed cast, you could get somebody with CP playing the doctor and somebody without CP playing a person with CP mm. and mix it all up, mm. keep mixing it. Mm. I, I think that's quite an interesting thing. I'm very taken with what you said, Gwydina, about we can't teach empathy. People want a checklist for everything, don't they? Mm -hmm. It's something that's in us, isn't it? And... Uh, but it doesn't mean that our awareness can't be raised, actually. I just think <laughs> these stories, you know, your stories, these stories are so powerful, is that if you brought, you know, musicians together, if you brought choreographer together, if you brought the mm -hmm. cast together, the people, the stories together into workshop situation, you'd start to find a language. It would move beyond ideas of words on a page and you what you'd find is this would be embodied and that's what it needs the material needs to be embodied and i think that i would take it into a workshop situation bring different creative voices dif different creative yeah. language yeah. and challenge it be rigorous we don't have to be precious or pussyfoot around the the yeah, material sure. is so powerful is that and the stories are so powerful how do we make that into powerful theatre? Not leaving anyone behind, leaving all the creative I, forces. Yeah. It's about being bold with the subject matter. I'm going to draw this very interesting conversation to a close now, but I'm just going to ask my absolutely lovely three people who've been helping us to have this discussion what they hope happens to this material that's in its very early fledgling stages. I'd like to see it in theatre or in a film. I see it 
moving into another workshop phase, bringing a body of people together to really play and dig, dig deep into this material and have fun. Uh-huh, thank you. And Gwydion. Uh, I, I would like to see it developed into a way where it shows that um, people with disabilities are just like other people. <laughs> so the stories go alongside other stories. Ah, okay. So they're mixed in with other stories. Oh, that's very interesting. Thank you so much for your time. And I'd just like to say again, thank you to Gwydion Calder, Reshma Patel and Tanya Myers. Thank you very much. I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined now by Lele Tankham, who I've had the pleasure of knowing because an applied theatre student at BCU. We invited Lele to come to the Zoom sharing of the monologues. So what do you remember, Lele, about those monologues? I remember the writer who created it talking about having cerebral palsy and how it affects her on a day-to-day basis and certain struggles that she had. Um, I don't know if this was a bonus aspect of the monologues, but I remember thinking that there's a sense of comedy and lightheartedness behind it. I don't know if that was intentional. If not, then it was a bonus, but I also remember thinking I struggle with certain things that this character is talking about as well. And a lot of the things that I do have difficulty with, I actually didn't know was a part of my cerebral palsy until listening to that monologue and actually doing extra research on it afterwards. And I thought, oh my. That makes so much sense now. Oh, how brilliant that you were going, I never knew that was to do with my CP. <laughs> my goodness. That was, so you found it helpful then? I did. I, obviously, certain things that I didn't know were related to my cerebral palsy. I just thought, okay, maybe that's just the way that it's like maybe I'm just me, maybe I'm just different. When people talk about cerebral palsy, they don't, in my experience, they haven't really explained all aspects of it. I know I have it, but I've never really thought about it that much until I got to a certain age. And when people were talking to me, they didn't really suggest that my learning difficulties would be a part of my condition. But my learning difficulties and my memory issues are a part of my cerebral palsy. Can I interrupt you for a second? Because what I find really interesting about that is that often that we think that theatre is to let the people to whom this subject isn't a subject that is about them. So, for example, if we um, talk about 
people with mental health issues that it's for other people to understand but actually we also learn about ourselves which is what you're saying that because you've got CP does not make you the expert on CP and actually around things like um, sexuality uh, women's sexual health throughout their lives that is something that's taboo anyway and it may be that people have not been talking to people with, with CP. Do you think there's enough sex education for young people with CP? Is it avoided, Lely, in your experience? I've never really expected too much in terms of anything specific. So sexual health and CP wasn't something that I thought, you know what, we need to be educated about sexual health and CP. I just thought it was like, okay, sexual health, whatever it is or isn't for me, because of my CP, is what I will then learn from. I didn't really rely on any external factors to educate me about my sexual health and having cerebral palsy. Like most things, I learn as I go. I usually do something, find out, oh, that's a bit different, and then research it after. The words, does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. And what's good about about the many things that people have said about what's useful about these monologues and the possible piece of art, theatre, whatever may come out of putting all these interviews together, this piece of work is useful not just for professionals, not just for uh, parents and policymakers, but also for the people that Sonali talked to, to listen to each other, learn from each other, and find out more. So, reportedly, it's a part of who I am, and I know it's seen as a disability, but I'm proud of it because it's taught me patience, it's taught me to stand out, and it's encouraged me not to be ashamed of standing out as well. So because of that, and anything that is a problem for me relating to my cerebral palsy, I know that it's because the other aspects of myself, like being more patient, being more understanding, that I need to develop to accommodate towards my cerebral palsy. I think that is so fantastic, and I'm sure that anybody listening to that would say that's what we all need to do. Being patient is so wonderful. But do you think as well that there's enough information in mainstream health about CP? Is there enough known about CP in the health no, service? No, I don't think so at no. all. And that's not necessarily the worst thing on the planet. Yeah. It's a work in progress, but what I would say... I would have thought that there would have been a bit more of a relationship between women with cerebral palsy and professionals or specialists 
So I would have thought that, like you're doing now, speak to women with cerebral palsy, find out what's actually going on, like, find out what is actually, how cerebral palsy affects different women, and then think, okay, well, this affects Lele, uh, she struggled doing this, that and the other, but she learned from her cerebral palsy, she's learning X, Y and Z, and then use that primary information to create a reliable, larger part of information to share with other people. I would appreciate a professional researcher came and asked me, what is it? What is cerebral palsy? What's happening? How does it affect you? And then use that information to share with other people. I don't, I don't want to take all the credit and say people with cerebral palsy know everything about cerebral palsy because in my experience that isn't true. I'm just surprised that all my, everything about my cerebral palsy has been told to me instead of me sharing it as an experience and then them using it to, yeah. Can I, oh, Lely, everything you're saying is so interesting and I'm sure everybody listening to this is really benefiting from it and it really ties in brilliantly. It's very good that you are an applied theatre student. So what would you like to see? Where would you like to see a piece of theatre that came out of this research about women with cerebral palsy and their sexual health throughout their lives? And the sky's the limit. Don't worry about funding. We can really go for it. Okay. On TV, I think it will be more accessible Mm. that way. Yeah. I think it should be a comedy. (laughs) You're brilliant. Go on, carry on, darling. Uh, I think because a lot of people see it as a bit of an issue and they're not, that's their opinion, everyone, they're not right or wrong for thinking that way. I think having it as a comedy will make not just people with terrible palsy, but other people feel a lot more comfortable about having, knowing someone with cerebral Some people, like, throughout growing up, people have actually not wanted to talk to me or be my friend, because they look at me and they think, oh, I might break her. (laughs) That couldn't be any further from the truth, right? So, it's not really that intense it's not it's not that deep like 
but at the same time, it will encourage and appreciate the reality of cerebral palsy. And I think I would like to see people adopt a natural response to people with cerebral palsy, like, oh, oh, she, you know, oh, okay, she's struggling with that, no problem, let me help you. Like, it's not a second, because some people don't want to help me because they, again, they think that they won't break me. <laughs> so I love the idea of it being a comedy because you're saying that people are pussyfooting around too much and it just needs to be get normal. What about casting, Lily? Do you think it should be all people, all actors with CP or some actors with CP and some without CP or how would you like to cast it? I think it should be open to everyone. I don't think it should be... I think people without CP would be brilliant playing a role with CP. I just think, like... As an actor, this is what I do anyway. When I played a role in the past, I've done research about the aspects of that character. They're a doctor. What do doctors do? What, what's the life of a doctor? And I research into the aspects of my character so that I can develop some empathy for that character. I, ne I never feel that I'm going to play a role 100% well as I would like to because I want it to really reflect that individual specifically. I never feel satisfied that I'm doing that, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because I'm not them. <laughs> <laughs> As an actor, to play a certain role that you're not really familiar with, you've got to open a part of yourself that you may not have opened before. That can be very challenging. But I believe that it can be done, and I would love to see it. <laughs> right, okay, I think this is absolutely brilliant. Now, I'm going to say goodbye to Lele now. Would you, last question, Lele, if this piece of theatre was on, say, the Birmingham Rep, well, I hope you'd be in it for a start-off, to be honest. Mm. Would you like to be in it, and do you think people would want to come and see it? Yeah, I'd love to be in it. I would love to. And I'd love to come and see it either way. I'd, it's not common. You don't... I, I've never seen a film on theatre with a, a somebody with several proportions in it. So it would be great. I'd love to either be in it or see it. Either way, it would be an honour. Thank you so much. So interesting and great points of view. So thank you very much to Lele Tankham.
absolutely brilliant to have that discussion. I'm going to return now to Sonali and Jana just to say hopes for the future in terms of, of this material being used. Uh, there's a great interest in it, and I'm sure that people listen to this podcast, but we've never heard anything like this before. Because of Sonali, you said at the beginning, the uniqueness of it. How, how can we make use of it in the future? What would you like to see happening, Sonali? I guess like we did um, in the workshops, using drama to um, bring out women's voices and women's lives and put it in a public domain so everybody can learn about it. Brilliant, thank you. And Jana, anything I hope is for using this material? So it'd be really nice to do this in a live context to take the workshops forward um, outside of COVID restrictions and actually meet face to face. And Sonali and I had planned to invite artists to hear and share the material as well in terms of perhaps um, a dancer, a musician, um, in order to bring those skills to bear. And from there, really to, to shape some material that could be toured to um, perhaps nursing conferences and um, events where um, reproductive health professionals are gathered. I'm sure there are such things. Um, and to share the material and uh, perhaps have sort of facilitated workshops with them um, with um, and carrying on the collaboration with women in theatre. Um, and also to think about a bigger um, performance piece that could sort of be a separate event that travels with with the workshop perhaps or, or in on its own to various venues uh, and again that's about reaching different audiences so really keen to reach out to the the healthcare people but also a more general audience in order to you know as Sonali said to to start to dismantle some of the barriers to access for these women if there is anybody that's heard this podcast or would like to pass this podcast on to anybody that feels that they could further the, the hearing of voices, what would we, yeah, what we, what are we wanting from the listeners? Yeah, no, we could get in touch because the project Diana mentioned is not on the way yet. So the, the more ideas we get, the better for the development of future work. Brilliant, because there is all this great body of, of work still, isn't there? And this is only beginning, isn't it? And ideally, it would be really great to have this piece of theatre made and to have these workshops happen and for this unique piece of work to reach different audiences. And that's the aim, isn't it? Yes, it is, yep. Um, and I think um, if anybody does want to get in touch, then um, they can get in touch with me for sure through the University of Birmingham, through the my email address there, which if you just Google my name, you can find that on Google. Thank you. And obviously through Women yep. in Theatre. Thanks very much to Dr. Sonali Shah and Dr. Jana Bouchard and to the people who are part of the um, discussion group and to Alison Belbin and everybody at Women in Theatre, and, to, and, sh and I'm sure that Sonali would also say to all the women that you interviewed. Thank you very, very much. That was me, Janice Connolly, sharing research-based monologues and discussions from the Bridging the Gap project. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you know someone who would benefit or enjoy listening, why not share it with them?
Also, rating and reviewing the podcast will help us find new listeners. The monologues, which were created from research by Dr. Sonali Shah, were read by Janice Connolly and Alison Belbin. And the discussions involved Dr. Sonali Shah, Dr. Jana Bouchard, Lele Sams, Gwydian Calder, Reshma Patel and Tanya Myers. And the podcast was recorded and edited in Birmingham by Brum Radio. The theme music was composed by Sam Frankie Fox. The Bridging the Gap music was composed by Dr. Sonali Shah. And the Bridging the Gap project is funded by the University of Birmingham and the Burdett Trust for Nursing.